in Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Have you ever wondered what the seven thunders cried? Will we ever know? You know, there is another place in the Bible where a prophet was told to seal up the things that he had been told. Daniel 12 verse 4, where he was commanded, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Now, in the case of the seven thunders, we are not told for how long they would be sealed up. But if they were to be sealed up forever, why would John even tell us that the seven thunders spoke and the words were sealed? Why not keep it a secret? Now, we discover that Ellen G. White knew a little bit about these seven thunders because she wrote in Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 971, after these seven thunders uttered their voices, the injunction comes to John as to Daniel in regard to the little book. Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered. These relate to future events which will be disclosed in their order. The special light given to John, which was expressed in the seven thunders, was a delineation of events which would transpire under the first and second angel's messages. So here L.G. White says that they would be disclosed. And she also tells us that it's things that were going to take place when the first and second angel's messages were given. And she says that they were future events. So it wasn't events that took place in 1844. They're future events that are going to take place. Manuscript Release, Volume 16, page 270 says, A similar work will be accomplished when that other angel represented in Revelation 13 gives his message. The first, second and third angel's messages will need to be repeated. So I think it's pretty clear that these are future events. Now, you might ask yourself, how are we going to go about to discover what it is that the seven thunders uttered? Where can we turn to? Certainly we can pray and ask for the Lord to reveal these things to us and without that, they will never be revealed. But where else should we turn? Jesus has told us in John 5.39, we're told to search the scriptures. Isaiah 28.10, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And in commenting on how we are to study the Bible, and how William Miller 
studied the Bible. In early writings 229 we read, William Miller saw there was a perfect chain of truth. He saw that one portion of scripture explains another and when one passage was disclosed to his understanding he found in another part of the word that which explained it. Have you ever searched the word to find seven thunders? Well there is a place in the Bible where the mysterious thunderings of God are revealed. And in that place we're told to listen very carefully to what they say. Job 37 verses 2 to 5. And here it says, Hear attentively the noise of his voice and the sound that goeth out of his mouth. He directeth it under the whole heaven. He thundereth with the voice of his excellency and he will not stay them when his voice is heard. God thundereth marvellously with his voice. Great things doeth he, which we cannot comprehend. So these verses tell us that God's thunders declares the mysterious workings of God in the earth. Just like Isaiah 55:11 says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. And Isaiah 42, 9, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So God in his word tells us, that he tells us what is going to happen before it does, so that we can confirm from the scriptures that the seven thunders are a delineation of future events. Now in verses 6 to 12 of Job 37, we find a total of seven works that God will do in the earth. And if we go to the conclusion of the description in verse 13 and 14, he says to us, He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. Hearken unto this. O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. So what this is saying is that he brings his works to pass both to punish his enemies and to have mercy upon his people. It tells us to stop and consider the mighty work that God is about to do in the earth. Do you want to stop and consider this mighty work that he's about to do? So if we go back to verse 6 we read about the first thunder. For he says to the snow, Be thou on the earth, likewise the small rain, and to the great rain of his strength. Now we know that in Israel, they had what was known as an early rain, or a smaller rain, that came in spring, at the beginning of the harvest. And a more abundant rain, a greater rain, came towards the end of summer, towards the end of the harvest. So straight away, we can tell from this verse that God is telling us about the outpouring of his Holy Spirit in the last days, the early and the latter rain. Now we know that the end of the harvest takes place under the loud cry, and we know that the seven thunders 
only describe events during the first and second angel's messages. So while this verse tells us that God gives us the earth, the small and the great rain, this verse specifically referring to the small rain, the former rain or early rain, because the greater rain comes after the third angel's message. So the main focus of this verse is the early rain. And the early rain is within itself a promise of the latter rain. Those who receive the early rain will receive the latter rain. Those who do not receive the early rain will not receive the latter rain. Now, we also know that this coincides with the beginning of the first angel's message and Great Controversy, page 355, says a great religious awakening under the proclamation of Christ's sin coming is foretold in the prophecy of the first angel's message, Revelation 14. And she goes on to say that it describes a revival of primitive godliness. Now, if the early rain brings about this revival of primitive godliness, it also must bring about holiness and righteousness to germinate in the lives of those who obtain the early rain. That's what the role of the early rain does, is to germinate the seed of righteousness, of holiness. As Isaiah 10, Paul says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fellow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Isaiah 45, 8, Drop down ye heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. So the early rain not only brings this righteousness, but is intrinsically tied to the blotting out of sins. As we read in Acts 3.19, Repent ye therefore be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. This is why at the same time we read that God makes the small and the great rain to fall. He also makes the snow. He says, snow be thou on the earth. Because what does snow represent? It represents the righteousness of the saints whose sins have been blotted out. Isaiah 1.18, though your sins be as scarlet, thou shalt be as white as snow. Psalm 51, 2 and 7, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Revelation 19.8, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness sake? Are you satisfied with your religious experience thinking that good enough it'll get me through? God's voice has thundered from the heavens and his word will not return unto him void. Are you breaking up your fellow ground so that the early rain can germinate the seed of righteousness in you? Or will the early rain pass you by? Cross subject lessons 56. The soil must be broken up by deep repentance for sin. The Lord bids us by his prophet break up your fellow ground. This work he desires to accomplish for us and he asks us to cooperate with him. And so now we move to the second thunder. Job 37.7 He sealeth up the hand of every man that all may know his work. It is only those that receive the early rain that will receive the seal of God. 
As Ephesians 4.30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now the word in Job 37.70, He sealeth up the hand of every man. That word translated has a broad meaning in the Hebrew and does not distinguish between the mind and the body. This word is often translated as work, ministry, power and direction. So it doesn't literally mean the hand or the physical work. It can involve the work of the mind. God cannot place his seal on your works unless he has first placed his seal on your forehead because works of the body are the fruit of the mind. Only those that are sealed will walk with God and do the works of God. And all men will see the work of God in and through them. And we read about those who are sealed when the early rain is poured out. Revelation 7 which says, verses 2 and 4, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed 144,000. And I said, first sealed, because after the 144,000, there's a great multitude that are sealed as well. Those that come out of Babylon, when the latter rain is poured out. Now, since we're told that the seven thunders delineate the events that will take place under the proclamation of the first and second angel's messages, it should be no surprise that it's the 144,000 that gives the first and second angel's messages, as we've seen in the past. We read Manuscript Release, Volume 16, page 40. The whole earth is to be lighted with the glory of God. The pure in heart shall see God. It is those who are following the Lamb with us over Goeth that will receive power from the angel that came down from heaven, having great power. The first angel's message is to be repeated. And we know it's 144,000 because they are the ones that we're told in Revelation 14 are those that follow the Lamb with us over he goeth. It's also no coincidence in Revelation 14 that the sealing of the 144,000 is presented immediately before the proclamation of the first Anne's message. And Ellen Dwight tells us that the solemn messages that have been given in their order in the Revelation. So the first thunder brings about the early rain. The second thunder announces the sealing of those who receive the early rain, those who accept it, those who embrace it, and then they receive power. Now if we go back to Revelation 7, we read a little bit more about 144,000, verse 4. It says, And I saw another angel sent from the east, having the seal of God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. So clearly the 144,000 are not sealed all at once and God needs to hold back the four winds while they are being sealed which, surprise, surprise, brings us to the third thunder. Job 37 verse 8 Then the beasts go into dens and remain in their places. Now the word in Job, dens, means to lie in wait. The proper word in English is an ambushcade. Basically it's a place from where a predator hides from which to carry out his attack on its prey. The other thing we know is that in the Bible, beasts represent kingdoms, nations, 
And so these beasts are the nations of the earth that are ready to unleash all-out war, literal war, to stop the work of God in the earth. But God's word restrains them. They're kept back in their dens, wanting, waiting for an opportunity to go to war. First selected messages, page 221. The nations are angry and great preparations for war are being made. Nation is plotting against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The great day of God is hastening greatly. But although the nations are mustering their forces for war and bloodshed, the command to the angels is still in force that they hold the four winds until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. And in review on Herald, November 17, 1910, the nations are angry and preparations for war are being made. But though there is among the nations an increasing unrest, though they are mustering their forces, they are as if they were held back from action by an unseen power. The angels are holding the four winds until the servants of God seal them in their foreheads. Are the nations of the world preparing for a worldwide war? China, Iran, Russia, Europe, America. World War III is coming. But not before the 144,000 are sealed in their foreheads. There is still time to obtain the seal of God. Do not be distracted by other concerns. Because when those winds are released, it will be too late to obtain that seal. Now when the four winds representing war and strife among the nations are restrained and the 144,000 are being sealed, we hear the voice of the fourth thunder in Job 37 verse 9. Out of the south cometh the whirlwind and cold out of the north. Here we see that God sends the whirlwind and cold from different directions. What does this mean? Now in the scriptures, the whirlwind is a symbol of distress and destruction directed against God's professed people. Often a judgment from God for their iniquity. Proverbs 127, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. Isaiah 40:24, he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. And Zechariah 7:14, but I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. This whirlwind is distressing. But no matter how distressing it is to God's people, this coming whirlwind of persecution will be a blessing. Because we're told in Testimonies, Volume 4, page 89, that prosperity multiplies a mass of professors, adversity purges them out of the church. And Acts of the Apostles 5.24, God's care for his heritage is unceasing. And he suffers no affliction to come upon his children, but such as is essential for their present and eternal good. He will purify his church, even as Christ purified the temple during his ministry on earth. 
all that he brings upon his people in test and trial comes that they may gain deeper piety and greater strength to carry forward the triumphs of the cross. Today, the church is not cold. It's actually fairly warmish, lukewarmish. But Jesus has told us that a time is coming when he's going to send cold. Revelation 3.15 I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. Matthew 24.12 And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. There will only be two classes. The wheat and the cateres, the hot and the cold. Being cold is a precursor to what's called hypothermia the indicator of spiritual death that's about to embrace them. Or should I say, which is about to embrace those who have not received the earlier rain, those who have not been sealed, those who rejected God's Spirit. So we come to the fifth thunder, Job 37.10. By the breath of God frost is given, and the breadth of waters is straightened. Now the word frost here, the word it's translated from literally means ice, which is extreme cold. And it's actually a reference to spiritual death. The first thunder was God giving the Holy Spirit under the metaphor of rain. And you know, we're told in the book of Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see, it's the same grace that melts the wax, hardens the clay. The same spirit that melts the heart, hardens others into ice, cold, rigid death. And so now we've read the fifth thunder that God straightens or narrows or restricts the water. He restricts the Holy Spirit now. In other words, God will remove the Holy Spirit from many of his professed people. Christian Leadership, page 11. From anyone who persists in stubbornness and self-will, God will remove his spirit and another will wear the crown that was for him. Bible Commentary, Volume 4, 1146. God's children are always being tested in the furnace of affliction. Opportunity after opportunity is placed before them of gaining the victory and proving themselves to be true to God. But if they continue to manifest rebellion, God is compelled at last to remove his spirit and light from them. Revelation 3.19, Be zealous thou art repent. This is the word of God to his professed people. I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. And Amos 8.13, In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. The fifth thunder tells us of a time when so-called Christians have become so fully united with the world, so fully imbibed of the spirit of Babylon, that God's spirit is withdrawn from them. And this is the reason why the second angel's message is proclaimed. 
Revelation 48. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine, of the wrath of her fornication. Great controversy 389. The work of apostasy has not yet reached its culmination. Not until the union of church with the world shall be fully accomplished throughout Christendom will the fall of Babylon be complete. The change is a progressive one and the perfect fulfilment of Revelation 48 is still future. At this time, many once esteemed leaders and leading men will turn all their efforts to persecute and destroy the sealed saints of God. Great Controversy 608. The words of Paul will be literally fulfilled. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 As the defenders of truth refuse to honour Sunday Sabbath, some of them will be thrust into prison, some will be exiled and some will be treated as slaves. To human wisdom, all this now seems impossible. But as the restraining spirit of God shall be withdrawn from men, and they shall be under the control of Satan, who hates the divine precepts, there will be strange developments. Which brings us to the sixth thunder. Job 37, verse 11. Also by watering he wearies the thick cloud, he scattereth his bright cloud. The Septuagint, which is the version of the Old Testament that all of the apostles quoted from when they wrote the New Testament, translates it a little bit differently. And if a cloud obscures what is precious to him, his light will disperse the cloud. Which essentially means that God will disperse whatever darkness obscures that which is precious in his sight. The saints and their witness for him are precious to God. And those that seek to destroy them, he will disperse. We'll read about how God's enemies will be restrained in Letters of Manuscripts, volume 18, page 121. Justice will take the throne. The arm strong to save will show itself strong to smite and destroy the enemies of God's people. In Testimonies, volume 5, page, four, five, page 452. The same infinite creator will work in behalf of his people if they will call upon him in faith. He will restrain the forces of darkness until the warning is given to the world and all who will heed it are prepared for the conflict. In Great Controversy 6.10 The opposition of the enemies of truth will be restrained that the third angel's message may do its work. And so now we come to the seventh thunder. Job 37 verse 12. And it is turned round by his counsels, that they may do whatsoever he commandeth them upon the face of the whole earth. The way, having been made clear for God's people to proclaim the final warning message to the whole world, it goes forth to the world. Early writings, page 85, while the work of salvation is closing, trouble will be coming upon the earth and the nations will be angry yet held in check so as not to prevent the work of the third angel. At that time, the latter rain or refreshing from the presence of the Lord will come to give power to the loud voice of the third angel and prepare the saints to stand in the period when the seven last plagues shall be poured out. 
Great controversy 6.12. The servants of God with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. And signs and wonders will follow the believers. Early writings, 278. Souls that were scattered all through the religious bodies answered the call. And the precious were hurried out of the doomed churches as Lot was hurried out of Sodom before her destruction. God's people were strengthened by the excellent glory which rested upon them in rich abundance and prepared them to endure the hour of temptation. So in summary, the seven thunders describe the coming works of God that he is about to perform when the first and second angels' messages are repeated with power. Reading Great Controversy 3.24, the Lord declares by the prophet Amos that he will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets, Amos 3.7. The students of God, God's word, may then confidently expect to find the most stupendous event to take place in human history clearly pointed out in the scriptures. The first thunder begins the falling of the early rain, which brings about the sealing of the 144,000. And since it seals the fate of the 144,000, it must be at the time of the investigative judgment when it is passed to the living and must coincide with the formation of the image of the beast because the image of the beast is that which will determine the destiny of God's people. The early rain is that which gives power to the 144,000 to proclaim the first and second angels' messages. While the sealing is going on, the third thunder is heard, crying with a loud voice to hold back the winds, while the first angels' message is proclaimed. And when the sealing of the remnant is complete, a whirlwind of persecution begins to separate the wheat from the tares and to purify God's church. Bible Commentary, Volume 4, page 1061. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. And then the fourth thunder removes the Holy Spirit from those who rejected the early rain and who have opposed the saints. They were once lukewarm, but now they are stone cold, spiritually dead. Their lamps will be empty, the candlesticks removed out of their places. They've been spewed out. They've been shut out of the marriage feast. And the door has been shut to them forever. And his saints are now ready to take the gospel, the pure, undefiled, pristine gospel to the world. So we see that the first step in the final work is the outpouring of the early rain and the sealing the 144,000. Only those that receive the early rain will be sealed. Only those that are sealed will receive the latter rain. Those that are not sealed will be spewed out. If only those that receive the early rain will be sealed, how can we know if we will receive the early rain? Has God revealed to us how we can recognise the early rain? Is it because there's a lot of loud music in the church? Maybe jumping up and dancing. What is the character of the early rain? What is its work? 
We're told, Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and thou shalt mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Are you mourning? Do you have that spirit of supplication and mourning over sin? Of weeping between the porch and the altar? Of godly sorrow, as we're told in Joel 2.17? That sorrow that worketh deep repentance? Or are you just having fun and enjoying God's blessings? James 4.8-10, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. 10 Corinthians 7.10 For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. The early reign is a spirit of brokenness. A realisation of how far we fall short of the character of God. A realisation of our desperate need to be transformed into his image. As Psalms 34.18 says, The law is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 51.16-17 For thou desirest not sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou desirest not in burnt offering, but the sacrifice of God or a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You see, we're told that the seal of the living God will be placed upon only those who bear a likeness to Christ in character. 7 BC 970. And those who receive... The seal of the living God of protection in the time of trouble must reflect the image of Jesus fully early Ryan 71. So my question is, do you reflect the image of Jesus fully? What are you doing about the faults in your character? Great controversy. Page 9 says, Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God in their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. This work is more clearly presented in the messages of Revelation 14. Are you making diligent efforts to make your robe spotless? How do we obtain that robe of Christ's character, the seal of God? What diligent effort? Is it that we are to make? We're told in Testimonies, volume 5, page 473, about those who will obtain that robe of righteousness. And it says, Zechariah's vision of Joshua and the angel applies with peculiar force to the experience of God's people in the closing up of the great day of atonement. As Joshua was pleading before the angel, so the remnant church with brokenness of heart and earnest faith will plead for pardon and deliverance through Jesus the Advocate. They are fully conscious of the sinfulness of their lives. 
They see their weakness and unworthiness. And as they look upon themselves, they are ready to despair. Are you ready to despair? Or do you think you're not that bad? Their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem about to consume them. But Jesus will bring them forth as gold tried in the fire. Their earthliness must be removed that the image of Christ may be perfectly reflected. Unbelief must be overcome. Faith, hope and patience are to be developed. This is before the image of Christ may be perfectly reflected. Which means it's before they are sealed. Which means it's before the mark of the beast is enforced. Continue reading. The people of God are sighing and crying. With unutterable sorrow, they humble themselves before the Lord on account of their own transgressions. But the anguish and humiliation of God's people is unmistakable evidence that they are regaining the strength and nobility of character lost in consequence of sin. Are you regaining that nobility of character? I continue. It is because they are drawing nearer to Christ and their eyes are fixed upon his perfect purity that they so clearly discern the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Their contrition and self-abasement are infinitely more acceptable in the sight of God than is the self-sufficient, haughty spirit of those who see no cause to lament. As the people of God afflict their souls before him, Pleading for purity of heart, the command is given. Take away the filthy garments from them. And the encouraging words are spoken. Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. The spotless robe of Christ's righteousness is placed upon the tried, tempted, yet faithful children of God. The despised remnant are clothed in glorious apparel, never more to be defiled by the corruptions of the world. Their names are retained in the land's book of life and rolled among the faithful of all ages. Now they are eternally secure from the tempter's devices. Do you want to be eternally secure from the tempter's devices? A fair mitre is set upon their heads. While Satan was urging his accusations and seeking to destroy this company, Holy angels unseen were passing to and fro, placing upon them the seal of the living God. You know now who's going to receive that seal. These are they that stand upon Mount Zion with the Lamb, having the Father's name written in their foreheads. They sing the new song before the throne, that song which no man can learn, save the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which follow the Lamb with us over Gaulth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits of God, and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no God, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, the vast majority of God's professed people either don't care or are so completely blind to the many rips and holes in their robes of character that they see no reason to be concerned. Thus, they're not afflicted. They have no need to sigh and cry over themselves. Unutterable sorrow does not mark their experience. They believe they have a relationship with Jesus, but it's not the relationship that is going to 
mean that they do not receive the mark of the beast. You see, Judas had a relationship with Jesus. It didn't help him one little bit. Yet Jesus, who cannot lie, tells us that our robes of character are so completely tattered that we stand before God blind and naked and he will spew us out. Sometimes we might realise that there is a gaping hole in our robe, perhaps of impatience or maybe of pride or of laziness, selfishness, maybe some lust. And we pray, oh God, patch this hole in my character. Give me victory over this sin. Do you think that God's going to answer your prayer? He most certainly will not. He will never answer such a request. No matter how earnestly we desire for him to do so. Why not? Because he has told us in Matthew 9, 16-17, No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine in old bottles, else the old bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Now I heard a highly esteemed preacher recently declare that repentance just means to stop sinning. That's not what repentance is. He's confusing the means with the objective. The means by which the objective is obtained with the objective. The two are not the same. It's like saying that being able to fly is the same as having wings. Many birds have wings but cannot fly. There are a lot of penguins masquerading as Christians today. It is true that a bird without wings cannot fly. But for thousands of years, men have tried to fly by building wings and each time have ended in failure because they do not understand how the wings work. Likewise, repentance is the means or the method by which we stop sinning. But if we do not understand true repentance, we will never overcome sin. Millions today think that wanting to overcome sin is the same as having repentance. The Jews wanted to overcome sin. They refused to repent. They think that wanting to fly is the same as having wings. They may even have some kind of makeshift repentance. But being ignorant of how repentance work, they will never, ever overcome sin. You see, the spirit of prophecy does not say that the seal of the living God is placed only upon those who have overcome sin. It says it is placed on those that reflect the character of Jesus fully. There is a distinct difference. Can you tell what that difference is? The objective is not the same as the means. Unless we have the correct means or method, we will not obtain the objective. The means for overcoming sin is to have the character of Jesus. It's not, once I have overcome sin, I will have the character of Jesus. They put the cart before the horse. Only those that have wings can fly. But you will fail to fly even if you have something that looks like wings unless it has the right elements. As I said before, the Jews in Jesus' day were desperate to overcome sin. But they failed to do so because they did not want the character of Jesus. They wanted the character of Barabbas. God does not propose to patch up the flaws in your character. 
He does not propose to save yourself from the sins that you are enslaved to. God has told us that there is only one hope to obtain the character of Jesus, and that is for every aspect of our character to be first done away with. Only self in all his aspects is crucified with Christ and dies and is buried can we put on the character of Christ. The whole thing must be discarded. Even those parts of our character that others admire, all must be completely removed if we are to put on the robe of Christ's character. You will fail of overcoming sin unless you have Christ's character. You will fail at obtaining the character of Christ unless you first see the fullness of your own depravity and earnestly seek not to patch up the flaws in your character, but to be completely and utterly recreated in his image. To be a new creature, to be born of the Spirit, to be transformed in mind and body and spirit. Desire of Ages 172, the Christian life is not a modification or improvement of the old, but a transformation of nature. The early reign is that spirit. That realisation of what we must be, that we are not. It is that vision of the holiness and perfection of Christ's character that reveals the corruption and perversity of our own. It is the realisation that unless there is a decided change in ourselves, we will never receive the seal of God in our foreheads. It is that spirit that humbles the pride of man, that breaks our spirit and leads us to desperately seek death to self as earnestly as a drowning man gasps for air seeking for life. It is that spirit that we read about in early writings 269. I saw some with strong faith and agonising cry, pleading with God. Their countenances were pale and marked with deep anxiety, expressives of their internal struggle. Firmness and great earnestness was expressed in the countenances. Large drops of perspiration fell from their foreheads. Now and then their faces would lighten up with the marks of God's approbation. And again the same solemn, earnest, anxious look would settle upon them. Said the angel, Look ye, I was shown those whom I had before seen weeping and praying in agony of spirit. The company of guardian angels around them had been doubled and they were clothed with armour from their head to their feet. Their countenances expressed the severe conflict which they had endured, the agonising struggle they had passed through, yet their features, marked with severe internal anguish, now shone with the bright light and glory of heaven. They had obtained the victory. And it called forth from them the deepest gratitude and holy, sacred joy. The numbers of this company had lessened the careless and indifferent who did not join with those who prized victory and salvation enough to perseveringly plead and agonise for it, did not obtain it, and they were left behind in darkness. Evil angels still pressed around them but could have no power over them. This is the, the ones that had gained the victory. I heard those clothed with the armour speak forth the truth with great power. I asked what had made this great change. An angel answered, 
It is the latter rain. Only those that have this experience, the spirit of the early rain, will be sealed and receive latter rain. We are told that the vast, vast majority of Sabbath keepers are too indolent, too complacent to obtain this experience. They will not wrestle in prayer as did Jacob. They are leaning upon a supposed hope of salvation that is without a true foundation. When the voice of God begins to thunder from the heavens, how many will ignore his voice and dismiss the need and be passed by when his saints are sealed? There is still some peace and stability in the world. When the whirlwind of persecution comes, will you discover that your love has grown cold? That it is too late to obtain that spirit? That preparation which you needed, but thought in your complacency that it was unnecessary? Can you imagine the anguish of those that at that time will realise that they have been forever passed by? They had chosen to believe that all God required of them was to believe in him and that he would save them in the end. They may even have wanted to die to self and overcome sin. It had never been a life and struggle for them. They could not understand the persevering deep anxiety, the agonising internal struggle that characterises true repentance. A struggle that will not cease until they have fully obtained the character of Jesus and are sealed. When in John 12, 28-30 Jesus prayed, Father, glorify thy name. And there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify again. The Jews that stood by heard it and said that it thundered. They did not understand or appreciate the word of God from heaven. And the word was taken away from them and given to others. Do you understand the thunders of God? Or will your seal be taken and given to another?